0: Can the U.S. realistically secure a military victory over Iran? What are the prospects of Trump's maximum pressure campaign leading to a better nuclear deal with the Islamic Republic? To what extent is the U.S. defense industry's greed for profits a primary motivator behind modern warfare and military buildups? What does the Trump administration's pullout from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty mean for the future of global stability and global relations? How do Israel and domestic politics figure into America's foreign policy decisions? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we examine controversial recent decisions by the Trump White House, including the decisions to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal and the INF Treaty, and assess whether they will lead to peace or nuclear obliteration in the near term. Our guests include veteran marine intelligence officer and commentator Scott Ritter, as well as secretary coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, Bruce Gagnon. On this week's program, Persian peril, brinkmanship in the post-INF era. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 28, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station, CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anshinabegakin, the homeland of the Metis, and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Partners of 5G Rural First include U.S. telecommunications giant Cisco, Microsoft, The BBC and British Telecom, the owners of EE, who are bringing 5G to Glastonbury Festival. 5G Rural First also has test beds on the Orkney Islands and Shropshire, and it claims its technology will help dairy cows perform better. But... They are ignoring the evidence of 230 scientists and doctors who are appealing to the World Health Organization to move the 5G wireless signal from a group 2B carcinogen to a group 1, the same as asbestos and arsenic. They believe that the dangers to health from 5G include increased cancer risk, cellular stress, harmful free radicals genetic damages, structural and functional changes to the reproductive system, learning and memory deficits, neurological disorders, and negative impacts on general well-being. And the damage goes well beyond the human race. There is growing evidence of harmful effects to plants, insects, and animals. That comes from the article 5G Ready? UK Government's 5G Rural First, Dangerously High Levels of Electromagnetic Field Radiation in Southern England by Annie dieu Leveu, posted June 26th, originally published at The Holistic Works. According to Kushner's plan, a Saudi oil refinery and a water desalination plant would be built in Al-Arish to benefit Palestinians living in Gaza. Tehran and Sana'fir Islands would be turned to and controlled by Israel, which gives Israel free access to the Red Sea. This territorial division will be the cause of even more future conflicts. This deal of the century is similar to Sykes-Picot Agreement, Balfour Declaration, and all the other Arab-Israeli agreements, which in reality are progressive phases of implementing the Zionist Greater Israel Project. The main goals of this deal are the elimination of the Palestinian refugees issue and the establishment and confirmation of the state of Israel as a legitimate state in the region who could normalize relationships with some Arab countries and even become their military and intelligence partner against outside enemy, namely Iran. That comes from the article The Shameful Deal of the Century by Dr. Elias Akle, posted June 26th. Fifty years ago, in late April 1969, the National Black Economic Development Conference, or NBEDC, was held at Wayne State University. Organized by the late IFCO founder, Reverend Dr. Lucius Walker, along with local and national organizations such as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the conference set off alarm bells among the ruling class interests in the U.S. and internationally. This conference was the backdrop for one of the first comprehensive calls for reparations in the modern era. Dr. James Foreman, the former Executive Secretary and later International Affairs Director of SNCC, issued the Black Manifesto at the NBEDC on April 26, 1969. The document issued by Foreman was adopted by the NBEDC, which demanded between 500 million to $3 billion in reparations from white Christian churches and Jewish synagogues in order to establish a host of institutional projects aimed at the liberation of the African-American people. That was an excerpt from text presented by Abayomi Azikiwe at a public meeting held at the Cass Commons in Midtown Detroit on June 19th to celebrate the annual Cuba caravan. Under the headline, Reparations and the Liberation of the African-American People. Posted June 26th. The deep state's shadow government hasn't stopped calling the shots behind the scenes. Comprised of unelected government bureaucrats, corporations, contractors, paper pushers, and button pushers who are actually calling the shots behind the scenes, this government within a government continues to be the real reason we, the people, Have no real control over our so called representatives. It's every facet of a government that is no longer friendly to freedom and is working over time to trample the Constitution underfoot and render the citizenry powerless in the face of the government's power grabs, corruption, and abusive tactics. And the American people haven't stopped acting like gullible sheep. In fact, many Americans have been so carried away by their blind, rank-and-file, partisan devotion to their respective political gods that they have lost sight of the one thing that has remained constant in recent years, our freedoms are steadily declining. That comes from the article, How Evil Wins, The Hypocritical Double Standards of Political Outrage, by John W. Whitehead, posted June 26th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. military claimed responsibility for shooting down a U.S. drone, which they said had violated their airspace. Trump has since intensified the economic sanctions leveled against the Islamic Republic. The Trump administration seems to be hedging its bets on a maximum pressure strategy geared toward bringing Iran back to the negotiating table so that Trump could negotiate a better nuclear deal. Beyond Iran, the Trump administration is breaking away from international agreements and diplomatic norms which have arguably played a role in mitigating the threat of a major powers conflict. To discuss these matters and where they may lead, I turn to two individuals who have distinguished themselves as critics of the narratives propelled by successive U.S. governments to generate its war agendas. Scott Ritter spent more than a dozen years in the intelligence field, beginning in 1985 as a ground intelligence officer with the U.S. Marine Corps. In 1987, Ritter was handpicked to serve with the on-site inspection agency where he was responsible for carrying out the provisions of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces or INF Treaty. And from ninety-one to ninety-eight, Ritter helped collect intelligence about Iraqi WMD programs, plant inspections in Iraq to find hidden WMD capability, and led those inspections as chief weapons inspector. In 2002, Ritter spoke out against the case being made by the U.S. government for war with Iraq. He joined us from Albany, New York. Bruce Gagnon has a three-decade-long history of involvement in the peace movement and active resistance to the use of nuclear weapons in outer space. He co-founded the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space in 1992, in which he serves as secretary coordinator. He also has a blog and has produced educational videos, all of which appear at his group site spaceforpeace.org. He joined us from Brunswick, Maine. We're speaking right now um, in the wake of some uh, major developments uh, happening in the the, uh, Persian Gulf region, a U.S. drone being shot down last week. Uh, Iran's claimed responsibility, arguing it was in Iranian airspace. The U.S. claims it was in international waters. And uh, so Trump refrained from authorizing a military assault on, at the last minute, uh, saying an attack could kill 150 Iranians. That it would be disproportionate. Uh, it should be noted that Iran did avert a war shortly after, uh, when, after the firing on the drone, when it backed off of firing a U.S. Navy anti-submarine warfare intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance Poseidon P-8 craft, which had been flying within range of Iranian missiles over Iranian waters. So with with the rhetoric intensifying on both sides, uh, Scott Ritter, could I get your take on the significance of that incident? Are are we reaching a point of no return where combat sooner or later becomes inevitable?
1: Well, I would say that had the Iranians not shot down the drone— a major American airstrike against um, an Iranian nuclear facility uh, sometime in early July was a um, was a distinct, um, not just possibility but probability. Uh, the you know the United States has drawn a red line, um, saying that if Iran um, violates the uh, <laughs> it's ironic if Iran violates the terms of the uh, JCPOA the uh, Joint Comprehensive uh, Program of Action, the, the the Iran Nuclear Deal. If Iran violates this, the deal that the United States backed out, then um, the United States would have to take action. And then the United States set Iran up by um, in, in May imposing uh, restrictions on two measures that kept Iran in compliance. One which allowed them to um, transfer heavy water to Oman for further sale. Another one which allowed them to swap. Uh, enriched uranium for yellow cake with Russia. This allowed them to stay below the caps on heavy water and enriched uranium imposed by the JCPOA. The U.S., uh, I guess, was trying to pressure Iran into stopping its enrichment program out of fear of violating these caps. Iran said, no, we're going to continue. And sometime in early July, they will violate their caps. They will have um, heavy water in excess of that which is permitted. They will have Uh, stockpiles of uh, enriched uranium in excesses of that which is permitted. They are also talking about uh, increasing uh, their enrichment uh, capacity, uh, bringing online some modern, uh, more effective centrifuges, uh, perhaps enriching up to 20 percent. And the U.S. said if this happens, we'll strike. And indeed, there was a lot of talk about the United States preparing a massive strike against Natanz, which would destroy Natanz. Um, The U.S. operates under a premise that it can carry out limited military action and therefore contain a conflict. And the, the premise was that by bombing the Khans, Iran may do a limited retaliatory strike, but then that would be it, and then we'd get, you know, that, that would be the end of it. Iran was trying to send a signal that that's not what is going to happen, that if you attack us, there is going to be massive retaliation, not only against the United States, but against every nation in the region that supports the United States, including their ability to manufacture and uh, and, and transport oil, in effect crippling not only the regional economy but the global economy. And by shooting down the drone, Iran brought this matter to a head. One of the key events that is underreported is that President Trump, through intermediaries in, uh, I believe, in Qatar or maybe Oman, sent a, a message saying, hey, we're going to do a limited retaliatory strike, but I really would like to sit down and talk with you guys. (laughs) Hmm. The Iranians came back and said, well, we're not interested in talking with you, and there's no such thing as a limited strike. If you attack us, there will be massive retaliation. And this is why the United States pulled back, not because of, you know, 150 casualties, et cetera. They pulled back because we don't have a plan. We don't have capacity. If we launched a limited military action, and Iran struck back at all of our targets in the Middle East, started sinking ships, blowing up oil refineries. We don't have the ability to respond to that. And the military said we, we should not go forward with something that we can't see through, that we don't have an end game on. And by sending this signal of massive retaliation, I think Iran may have stopped an American attack on the Khans in July, because the United States now knows that any attack against Iran cannot be contained. It will not be a limited action. It will be massive retaliation leading to a full-out war that the United States is neither prepared to fight nor has the capacity to fight at this time.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had uh, Pepe Escobar on uh, not too long ago, who talked about his own sources suggesting that the— with the shutting down of uh, the Strait of Hormuz, which uh, Iran does have the capacity to do, that uh, we could be looking at uh, oil escalating in price uh, into the triple digits, if not the quadruple digits. But I I am interested, Scott, in particular in your take on this because I know that there's an operational plan on the part of the United States, OP1002, which I believe you, in your early days as a Marine intelligence officer, you helped craft the intelligence annex for that. Given what you know... About uh, the logistics of uh, attacking Iran. I mean, what, 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 are what kinds of casualties, or, or what kind of prospects are there for uh, some sort of a, a victory on the part of the United States? Well, first
1: of all, I'll start off by saying that I know nothing about current planning, and if I did, I wouldn't talk about
0: it. Okay, for sure. <laughs> you know,
1: that's just a, that's just a, you know an outright statement. But but you know the the, the fact that you know. Uh, operation Plan uh, 1002 exists is, is unclassified. The fact that I worked on it is unclassified. Uh, the fact that it served as the basis of Operation Desert Storm is unclassified. The fact that uh, th- this Operation Plan served as a, a, a initial planning document for the, the invasion of Iraq in uh, 2003 is unclassified. So it, it is fair to say that Operation Plan 1002, which basically talks about the movement of American military power into the Persian Gulf um, to engage in a, in a ground, in ground combat with, with an enemy. Uh, it doesn't matter who the enemy is. It's, it's basically an operation plan that sees troops flowing into the Middle East for ground combat on a large scale. Um, there's, there's, there's two ways we can get troops to the Middle East. One is through amphibious lift, sea power. Uh, when when I was involved in, in this back in, uh, in the 1980s and early 1990s, you know, we had the capacity to carry out a, a an amphibious assault at the division level. That is, we could put a division's worth of Marines on the ground and follow them up with a couple divisions of divisions uh, of, of U.S. Army troops. We don't have that ability today. The Marine Corps would be lucky if it could put a brigade on the ground. And the brigade is is, is not enough men to do anything. It can seize a port, and that's about it. But even then, we we shied away from an amphibious assault. The way we moved forces into the Middle East was using permissive ports and permissive airfields in friendly nations. So there was no uh, forcible entry option. And today, if we're talking about taking on the Iranians using ground troops, there is no forcible entry option. We do not have the capacity to flow, or the capability to flow enough sufficient combat power into the Middle East to, to accomplish anything. We would have to land at friendly airports. And I'm telling you right now, the Iranians would make them unfriendly instantaneously. Uh, we would have to land at ports, stack our ships out in the Gulf, and they would get sunk they would get damaged. So any conflict with Iran would have to be primarily a, a, an air conflict. And even then we're in trouble because, you know, our, our air bases are vulnerable to Iranian counterstrikes, to Iranian um, insurgency-based uh, interdictions. Uh, this is not going to be an easy uh, fight. Not only that, our ability to sustain this operation is questionable. You know, our, our airframes are old. Uh, our newer airframes, the F-35 and f 22 don't work. High-maintenance capabilities. We would not be able to surge enough aircraft over a sufficient period of time to, uh, you know, to, to prevail in a conflict with Iran. That doesn't mean that Iran's going to beat us. But Iran wins simply by not losing. That was the lesson of Hezbollah against Israel in 2006. Let the other side thump their chest, say they're going to beat you. And at the end of the day, if you still hold the battlefield you win. And that's what will happen if we go to war with Iran. Mm -hmm. We don't have the ability to defeat Iran. It doesn't mean Iran will defeat us, but it does mean that Iran will win politically, and war is an extension of politics by other means, so a political victory is the only victory you want. Mm -hmm. And Iran would win politically um, by by preventing the United States from prevailing in, in a conflict.
0: Yeah, I want to just bring uh, maybe Bruce Gangin can uh, offer a few thoughts. Uh, uh, I think that there's a, a general sense out there that uh, the United States is not going to, I mean, based on what's uh, the, the, the disasters that uh, Iraq and Afghanistan have become, uh, the idea of winning a war with Iran uh, seem, would seem absurd even to the most uh, uh, otherwise uh, robust Trump partisan uh, w- Bruce, would you like to, to add some of your thoughts about what, uh, you know, w- what the prospects or what the result of any kind of a military attack on Iran would be?
2: Well, I, uh, I would uh, first uh, say I agree with everything that Scott has said. Um, and as you just said, the U.S. has really been unable to even handle Afghanistan or Iraq. It's not been a successful, uh, operation in either place, and, then recently, the failed coup attempt in Venezuela uh, is just more evidence heaped onto this collapsing empire that we are today. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that the U.S. is really playing desperation politics right now. The, the idea of U.S. unipolar control of the world, being the king of the hill, those days are gone as we see the ascendancy of Russia and China on an economic level and a military level. Uh, the unity between those two countries really checkmates a lot of what the United States can get away with. since Yugoslavia, when the u s and NATO attacked that country and broke it into pieces, at that time, uh, Russia really couldn't do much about it. It wasn't in a position to do so, but Since then, uh, we see that Russia and China really are a lot more assertive internationally and are really blocking a lot of the U.S. attempts at these regime change operations. So uh, I I think uh, the U.S. US empire is collapsing uh, because of money, uh, but also because of its arrogance and its idea of exceptionalism. And the rest of the world's just not buying it anymore. Uh, The only thing is, is one has to ask, is how dangerous are we in this moment? Are we, you know, Trump talks about obliterating countries, whether it's North Korea or Iran with nuclear weapons. Is uh, this so-called leadership in Washington, Pompeo and and, uh, and the like, uh, are they so desperate that they will use nuclear weapons, whether theater or or uh, conventional nuclear weapons. That's the worry I think most of us have today.
0: Yeah, I'm curious about, like, going back, to, like, looking at the Iran situation, the uh, <clears throat> the whole premise of, of a lot, at least what's been stated, is the concerns about the, uh, the Iranians building their nuclear capacity, and, of course, uh, Trump has effectively... Uh, Gone out there and uh, you know broken the deal last year, saying that this is the worst deal ever signed, and so you know this has been uh, their their official reason for 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 going through with this. Scott, I know you wrote the book uh, last year on on the nuclear deal, the the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and uh, about Trump's backing away from it. Uh, he is pursuing this maximum pressure strategy, so-called. That's. Uh, do you could you maybe assess the prospects of that strategy achieving a better deal with Iran on eliminating a nuclear weapons capability?
1: Well, we have to start with foundational elements uh, to get a better deal. We have to be dealing with reality. If the reality was as Donald Trump and his administration claims, and frankly speaking, as the Obama administration passed off to them. Because I, I put the vast majority of the blame of the situation we're in today uh, at the feet of Barack Obama and his administration. They, they, yes, they entered the JCPOA, the, the, the Iran nuclear deal, but they did so on a fundamentally flawed premise, one that says that Iran had a nuclear weapons program. And now while that program was halted, it was never declared by the Iranians, and therefore it continues to exist uh, in, in some sort of mothballed fashion. Now, if this is the case, then the Iran nuclear deal is one of the worst deals in history, because all we've done is buy Iran time with international protection to revive its economy, to put in place all the the, the the mechanisms necessary for a rapid breakout to nuclear weapons capability. Once the sunset clauses on the Iran nuclear deal expire and Iran can deploy the full power and capability of its advanced centrifuges, it will have the ability to produce enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon within weeks, not the year that the JCPOA uh you know puts forward so if you know this is the scenario that exists in Donald Trump's mind he inherited a nuclear deal premised on an intelligence estimate that says that while Iran stopped nuclear weapons program in 2003 that program continues to exist now that's a fundamental flaw because there's no evidence that Iran ever had a nuclear weapons program in fact is uh, the evidence suggests not just suggests the evidence sustains Iran's case that it never had a nuclear weapons program, that it has no intent to produce nuclear weapons, and that all it seeks to do is produce enriched uranium in accordance with Article 4 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which Iran is in complete compliance with today, thanks to the JCPOA. Mm-hmm. But the problem with Trump is that he thinks by putting maximum pressure on Iran, he can get them to budge. But the question is, budge from what? Not from the, you know, the the imaginary, fictitious, they have a secret nuclear weapons program that we need them to give up. A, the program doesn't exist. Therefore, B, Iran can't give it up. So what are we asking the Iranians to do? To surrender on their Article 4 rights? Iran has said that will never happen. And the one thing that this nearly two decades of you know, nuclear-based crisis with Iran has shown us is that Iran will not budge. They, they've already sustained, you know, decades of economic sanctions. They've already been already been threatened with war, and they prevailed. You know, Barack Obama was forced to admit that the only solution to the Iranian problem would be a war unless the United States backed down on the issue of Iranian enrichment. So we're the ones who caved in. We're the ones who came to the table We're the ones who said, you can enrich, we need a deal, we have to stop this slide towards a war that we're solely responsible for, because Iran doesn't want a war. And that's a long way of saying that Donald Trump's maximum pressure campaign has absolutely zero chance of succeeding. And Donald Trump's coming to the same realization that Barack Obama reached, that, hey, if we don't stop this nonsense, we're heading to a war that we're not ready to fight. And frankly speaking, we can't win the, the the bad news is that trump doesn't have the same kind of quality advisors that barack obama had he doesn't have a john Kerry. um you know he what he has is a john bolton hmm. what he has is a mike pompeo and these are very dangerous people who continue to hold on to notions of regime change. changes somehow through maximum pressure we can create the condition inside iran that the Iranian people will rise up and remove the mullahs from power. But the exact opposite is taking place today. What's mm-hmm. happening today is because of maximum pressure, because of the American threats of war, the Iranian people are rallying behind the the, the, the government of, of President Rouhani, rallying behind the supreme leader uh, Khamenei in a way that hasn't been seen in some time now. So we're having the exact opposite effect. And I think You know, we're going to just quick shift here. One of the benefits of Trump's uh, relationship with Vladimir Putin is that he has has access to a man who actually knows how to conduct diplomacy. The Russians are masters at diplomacy. One of the key aspects of diplomacy is the ability to sit and listen to the other side. And the Russians have sat down with the Iranians. They have listened to the Iranians. And I think Putin, through this G20 summit, might be able to whisper some words of wisdom into Donald Trump's ear uh, that will uh, compel him to recognize the danger, the trap that has been laid for America in Iran by John Bolton and Mike Pompeo.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW ninety five point nine FM in Winnipeg, and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Bruce, um, as as I was uh, listening, examining the logistics of the situation, listening to uh, you know the things that you and Scott were saying about uh, uh, you know the prospects for Iran, I I was reminded of uh, the Bay of Pigs. uh, Invasion back in the in the early '60s, and the bad information that that Kennedy was getting—that you know, it seemed somewhat reminiscent of that time. What what do you think? Is that a, a, a of of comparing comparing the, the current uh, expedition adventures against Iran with uh, some of the uh, advice that uh, Kennedy was getting around the Bay of Pigs in uh, '61?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have to add into the equation various key facts, one fact being that the military industrial complex likes these wars because they make huge profit on uh, one of the networks recently they had one of these retired admirals on there who was promoting a war with Iran and then come to find out one uh, progressive commentator looked him up and discovered he's on the board, on the board of directors of Raytheon, who would benefit greatly from such a war. The expenditure of many missiles and other technologies that Raytheon builds, uh, they'd have the weapons production plants working round the clock after, after such a war got started. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think uh, it's all real. Um, you have these military officers that are inside there sitting down with the president saying, yes, sir, we could do it, yes, sir, yes, sir, and then they retire and they go to work for these weapons corporations. So this revolving door is a real key to creating U.S. policy. I think U.S. foreign policy has become privatized. It's not the Congress that makes the decisions anymore. It's the corporations Hmm. and the American people, uh, are left way, way, way behind. We're expected to pay for it. We're expected to hand over uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, what's left of the social safety net, education funding, environmental funding, in order to pay for these wars.
0: There was the uh, announcement of that the United States would be pulling officially pulling out of the treaty uh, the uh, Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF. Uh, and so that's uh, if you that that there's a 180 day press process now underway, uh, and you know with that uh, Washington argued that they're breaching the treaty because they say well Russia has breached the treaty by, by developing the 9M729 cruise missile, uh, and so we're it, it's no longer. But you, what what you're saying there, Bruce, it sounds I I, I see a, an ulterior motive is that there's a real bonanza to be had if we can. Uh, uh, get rid of uh, treaties like that and start developing uh, a new range of weaponry. And already, also being able to uh, uh, make money, uh, you using all those investments to support this new range range of armaments. Uh, uh, Scott, maybe you'd like to, to step in and and, and comment uh, about you know some of the consequences, you know, with corporate or otherwise, that uh, behind this uh, breaching of that t- important treaty.
1: Well, I think. It's important to, to recognize that any sane, rational person will tell you that um, the academic concept of nuclear deterrence is, um, you know, uh, premised in lunacy. Uh, you know, so therefore, it should be you know, we we've, we we collectively, the United States, uh, our leadership, the, the the military, et cetera. Um, have given credence to the notion that by threatening to destroy the entire world, to threatening to destroy humanity as we know it, um, you know, we have engendered stability. Uh, we've done the exact opposite because, you know, there, there hasn't been a weapon in history that's been developed and, and, and not used. Uh, the whole purpose of, of spending money on a weapon is to, is to have that capability and at some point in time, Uh, Because you have that capability, that means that you have, you've you've defined the four corners of acceptable limits where this weapon can be used. Uh, To give you an example, in Iran, if we were insane enough to go to war with Iran, our only endgame strategy would be the limited use of nuclear weapons to break the will of the Iranian people, uh, to break the will of their government, to to, to continue to resist. Because we don't have the conventional capability to do that, and having... um, you put on the line the the national prestige of the United States. Uh, we can't back away without suffering irreparable harm. And and thanks to our brilliant um, military strategists, we our, our nuclear posture review, our national security uh, strategy plan, you know allows limited nuclear action in non nuclear uh, circumstances, such as having tens of thousands of American troops at risk maybe stuck inside Iran with no way to extricate them. So now we use nuclear weapons. And my point is we are addicted to nuclear weapons. We've been addicted to nuclear weapons since when we first developed the atomic bomb back in 1945. And this addiction does not allow us to consider the the, the possibility of doing away with these weapons through meaningful arms control. And this is one of the problems with having the military-industrial complex, especially the the nuclear aspect of the military-industrial complex, so deeply um, infiltrated into our system. We have a a moment in history that still exists where Russia will be willing to enter into the deepest kind of nuclear cuts to strategic arsenals, uh, the kind that take you know, the the weapons down to hundreds on, on each side. And once you reduce the nuclear arsenal to hundreds, it becomes a very, very expensive uh, proposition to maintain. And therefore, there might even be a willingness to consider going to zero. Um, that's a long way away. There's a lot of things that have to happen, et cetera. But my point is that's the direction we should be heading. Instead, we have people talking about the complete modernization of our nuclear arsenal costing trillions of dollars over decades. And once you buy into the need to modernize, you have to have full-spectrum dominance. And one of the things that the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty did is take away a range of military options in the form of short-range nuclear missiles and intermediate-range nuclear missiles. China has this capability. Pakistan has this capability. Iran has intermediate-range missiles, not nuclear-capable, but still Saudi Arabia has them. Israel has them. Everybody has them but the United States and Russia. So this wasn't about Russia cheating. In fact, Russia proved that it's not cheating. I mean, that's the the sad reality here, is that Russia actually was willing to go above, above and beyond that which is required by the treaty to demonstrate that this 9M729 cruise missile does not have the range that the United States attributes to it, that the United States has yet again suffered an intelligence failure by linking the lawful development of a sea-launched cruise missile, the Caliber, uh, to a ground-launched cruise missile, this 9M729. Uh, Russia was willing to basically allow its national security secrets to be revealed to the United States in terms of um, you know, the technical capabilities of a missile, production capacity, et cetera, to, to prove this point, the United States wanted to have nothing to do with it. We walked away from it and basically said, your only option is to get rid of the missile. You get rid of the missile, you get rid of the launcher, you're in compliance. Russia's not going to do that. But this wasn't about that missile. This was about getting the United States back on track to producing full-spectrum nuclear capability from tactical nuclear weapons to short-range nuclear weapons to intermediate-range nuclear weapons to intercontinental ballistic missiles. This is the direction we're heading in, and again, the danger for this is there will come a time, because of our diminished conventional capacity, there will come a time when we get into a fight that we can't win unless we use nuclear weapons. I
0: just wanted to, to maybe get some uh, of your, uh, maybe some final thoughts uh, from you about the... Uh... Cyber warfare, or, or other areas where the we're seeing some uh, innovations that would basically distance us from a uh, that would alter the you know, the scope uh, of of battle.
1: Well, I, I would start off by saying that we are our own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, when we when we talk about you know threats to the United States. Um, we are the greatest threat to ourselves. There's, there's no other nation or group of nations out there that uh, that threaten, you know, American democracy more than um, the the American government. And frankly speaking, the American people through their complacency and their ignorance uh, and their willingness to, uh, you know, to elect officials um, that they don't know uh, in support of political parties they haven't researched. Uh, and, and then they don't hold them to, uh, to account. Um, you know, I don't know why that is because maybe it's because we've all wrapped ourselves in a cocoon of comfort where, you know, the government bribes us into, um, some sort of, you know, <laughs> narcotic induced, uh, you know, <laughs> passivity, but we're the greatest threat to ourselves. There's no other nation out there that threatens us like we threaten ourselves. And, and I'll give you an example. One is it, it's, it, it's this 2016 presidential election. Um, you know the, the the fact of the matter is um, it, it it was sort of a revolutionary moment where you know Donald Trump won not because Russia supported him. If you actually think Facebook put a you know finger on the scale of American democracy, you you don't understand anything. People voted because they were rejecting you know the the, the old establishment and uh, and were supporting you know a a rebel not because some Russian troll told them to attend a. Uh, you know, a, a, a demonstration or, you know, put out a, uh, a meme, uh, you know, showing Hillary Clinton, you know, doing something embarrassing. Um, that, uh, that, that's just ridiculous. It's absurd, and it shows the, 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 the fundamental weakness of American democracy that we can even consider that as being a possibility. Uh, and because, you know, there, there's an old saying that if you don't, you can't solve a problem you haven't properly defined. And if we're saying the problem of American elections is, you know, dealing with Russian troll farms, we haven't defined the problem, right? Therefore, the solution we're searching for um, is the wrong solution. It's not going to resolve anything. And and, and we're going to continue to see this frontal assault on American democracy, not by, you know, outside actors, but by the American political establishment itself. Um, and and we're, we're seeing that play out today. It's just it's it's ridiculous the amount of um, of negativity that uh, that that is transpiring in, in the American body politic. And now we, we, we take this and we can we, we can you know attach this, this this kind of criticism to just about everything we do. Let's take cyber warfare for example. You you, yes. you talked about that. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously we're 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 capable. I mean, next proved that we we have you know amazing tactical skills. We can take a virus and we can insert it into an air-gapped Iranian nuclear facility and cause centrifuges to spin wildly out of control. There's a couple problems with that scenario. One, um, it wasn't that good. I mean, we did it. It was it was amazing. But at the end of the day, it was detected and dealt with. The Iranians resolved the problem. Their centrifuges are back and running, and, and mm-hmm. we're not able to impact them. Uh, two, um, the virus went wild. <laughs> it got out into the... <laughs> And it, you know, it escaped and it, and it impacted the, the world. And we had this embarrassing moment uh, where the Department of Homeland Security was at a meeting with Barack Obama talking about Stuxnet as, as a foreign um, attack when the CIA and NSA and Barack Obama and everybody else knew that it was America that did it. Um, you know, and, 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 and that's a problem. We I'll give you another example. Uh, the NSA has this uh, this this tool that it was using to uh, infiltrate Cisco routers and to get into Russia and and, and do all this stuff. Well, gosh, guess what? The, the other guys got that and they fed it back on us. And uh, and, and one of the most damaging uh, you know, denial of service attacks in, in 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 history transpired not because of some malware produced by Russian hackers or Chinese hackers, but because of repurposed American malware. Mm-hmm. Um, The fact is, we're not as good as we think we are. We're not as clever as we think we are. And uh, the other guys that are out there are watching what we do and learning from us and getting better at it than we are. Um, A a prime example, Um, we we had this wonderful drone called the, uh, I think it's RT-136, I don't know the exact name, but we called it the Beast of Kandahar. It was this B-2-like drone that flew out of Afghanistan at a secret facility, It was used to to, to help in the assassination of of, uh, Osama bin Laden. Um, Well, it was also flying over western Iran uh, doing uh, reconnaissance. The Iranians parked an intelligence team outside of Kandahar and for months intercepted every uh, signal that was used to launch and control the beast of Kandahar. And at the appropriate time, the Iranians broke into this encrypted capability disrupted satellite communication and took control of this most secret drone and landed it in Iran and captured it um we have to understand that they're good they're really good and they're better than we think they are and in many cases they're better than we are especially in the realm of cyber um you know we we're just not as clever as we think we are and that's that's a problem when you're somebody who believes that you have exceptional capabilities that you you, you also know, have can, to keep in mind
0: yeah also have to keep in mind that there's a whole world out there that's getting tired of that kind of imperial overreach and and arrogance frankly
1: well not just tired of it but but I mean you know it's one thing to be tired of it it's the other thing to say we're going to take action against it
2: mm-hmm. and I think
1: one of the things we're seeing um, in the cyber world is people saying we're not willing to let you get away with this um, without any you know, retribution, you know, the United States is very good at pointing the finger at other players and saying, you attacked us, you did this, you did that. What we don't talk about is what we do to the rest of the world. Yeah. They, I mean, the like, we,
0: they keep we hearing about how they fight. They, they hate us for our freedoms, but no, it's not. They, they have some no, they, they uh, legitimate, they legitimate
1: because, reason. Because we're bullies. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we spy on Angela Merkel. We wonder why she's mad at us. We or interfere in Russian re- elections. <laughs> we, we interfered in the French elections. We interfered in the European parliamentary elections. We do everything we accuse the Russians of doing and more. And yep. yet we get on our high horse when somebody plays that card back at us.
0: We're listening to a recent interview with Scott Ritter, veteran marine intelligence officer, former chief UN weapons inspector in Iraq, author and commentator. Bruce Gagdon, who spoke in our first half hour, was not available to continue our discussion, so we resumed with Scott, opening up our discussion to wider themes relating to the prospect of nuclear confrontation and conflict with other major powers. What, what, what in your view, are the geostrategic aims of, of trying to subdue Iran? Who is influencing Trump in in that whole escapade
1: well one of the big factors out there is oil and the price of oil uh and the price of oil is dictated by the ability of oil producers to meet to have capacity to meet demand if you have capacity that meets demand and is able to meet a fluctuating demand so you can turn capacity on shut capacity down etc um, you can maintain some sort of stability in oil pricing. Uh, for, for decades now, the, 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 the big oil spigot has been Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, uh, through Aramco, has developed um, the, the capacity to produce about 11, 12 million barrels a day. They don't necessarily produce that much. They produce actually considerably less than that. But the, the, the point is they have this capacity, and this capacity comes at a cost. Um, but what this means is that if we suddenly have a surge in demand or we have a situation where um, a Venezuela drops out of uh, the ability to produce, Saudi Arabia can fill the void instantly. They can turn on uh, production capacity, and the global supply of oil is, uh, is, is sustained. Um, and this is one of the things that, uh, that's taking place, because, you know, we fear, for instance, we feared Saddam Hussein's Iraq uh, becoming fully developed from, a, from an, uh, an energy production standpoint. Because if Iraq is able to pump out a lot of oil, suddenly the, that diminishes the value of the Saudi um, excess capacity. If Iran is able to maximize its oil production, that likewise threatens you know, the, 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 the role of Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi Arabia is one of these players behind the scenes that's pressuring the United States to mm. keep Iran under control. The last thing Saudi Arabia wants is a fully realized Iran out there producing oil mm. in unconstrained fashion and, uh, and, and flexing its own geopolitical muscles in a, in a region on turf that Saudi Arabia, Arabia believes is ex- exclusively theirs, and so this is, um, you know, this is a, a, a major factor. But what's, what's interesting about Trump, I mean, we can criticize him all we want, and believe me, we do. But <laughs> what's interesting about Trump is he's willing to consider the the, the absolute lunacy of decades long. Um, posturing by the United States in uh, questioning whether or not that's sound. He did that with NATO. I mean, he's the first president says, hey, uh, what is this NATO thing and why are we doing this? What benefit do we get from this? You guys keep talking about this grand alliance, but all I see is a giant money pit that we pour military resources in. And, and, and for what? I want to be friends with Russia. I don't necessarily want to go to war with Russia. So why do you want me to continue to prop up NATO? Nobody's asked that question. and It threatens everybody. And just the other day after the shootdown of the drone, uh, Trump tweeted, hey, uh, why are we protecting the Strait of Hormuz? We don't get any of our oil through this. We produce our own oil. Why are we the ones doing this? China gets their oil through there. Japan gets their oil. Why aren't Chinese ships and Japanese ships protecting the Strait of Hormuz and guaranteeing freedom of passage? Nobody's ever asked that question because it's the question that's not allowed to be asked because politicians are bought off by special interests who... Mm -hmm. Are, who maintain their power by sustaining the the same patterns of behavior that have been in place for decades. It may have made sense at one time to have Saudi Arabia, you know, during the Cold War, able to control oil supplies. It may have made sense at one time to have NATO. Those speaking two of, organiz- the, 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 those two things don't make speaking any Speaking of today. of special Trump's
0: challenging that. Speaking of special interest, I know that one of the major donors to Trump's campaign was Sheldon Adelson and Sheldon Adelson has been a major uh, you made some very provocative things with regard to Iran and very uh, much a, a Zionist supporter of, of, of Israel. And, of course, Israel is the only other country other than the United States that's been critical of the JCPOA. Do you, do you want to talk about the extent to which domestic politics has been conspiring to, and, and I suppose <laughs> Israel, uh, this ongoing you know, support Israel no matter what it does, is, how that's you know, pushing us in that direction? Or, or is that mostly a, a, a Bolton-Pompeo thing.
1: No, no. I mean, look. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, you know, one of our uh, congressional representatives got in trouble recently for talking about it's all about the Benjamins. Um, you know, it's all about the money and the in the in the control the Israeli lobby has over it. Um, but you know, that is a reality. It's this isn't fiction. This isn't anti-Semitism. This isn't anti-Israeli. You can be as pro-Israeli as you want and they still have to deal with the reality that. You know, Israel um, influences American politics. When you have an organization like the, uh, you know, the American Israeli uh, is it, Public Affairs Committee, APAC, yeah, um, that, that 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 funds the election campaigns of American uh, elected officials based upon their willingness to support Israel, uh, and they they don't have to register as a foreign agent. They, they just get to go around and do whatever they want. When I resigned from the United Nations and started speaking out against um, you know, the, 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 the policies of the United States, I would go to you know, congressional offices. I would go and do a tour of senators and congressmen. And right behind me was a three-person hit team. When I say hit team, I don't mean physical, but you know, ideological hit team of APAC who shadowed me and as soon as I finished with a given congressman or senator, they came in behind to do damage control. Um, these guys are masters at manipulating public opinion. These guys are masters at 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 providing political value to their services. So much so that they're amongst the most feared, um, you know, lobbyists uh, out there, up there with the National Rifle Association in terms of their ability to destroy you politically if you don't you know, do what they what they want. Israel interferes in American elections every single election cycle. And nobody talks about it. Nobody wants to talk about it because they get attacked as anti-Semitic. So this is a reality that even, you know, an independent maverick like Donald Trump has to deal with. The fact of the matter is, if you don't have the Israeli lobby on your side, you're probably not going to win a national election of of any significance. Uh, Every president has kowtowed Every major senator who wants to run for presidential office has kowtowed, has bent the knee, uh, so to speak, to, to APAC, and, 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 and this is the reality of, uh, of the situation that exists in America today.
0: Yeah. Scott Ritter, uh, it's, uh, it appears that we've lost uh, Bruce Gagnon, so it's unfortunate. But uh, I want to thank you both uh, for, for coming on and sharing these thoughts. I don't know. Is there anything else you, you'd like to say before we close? Uh, maybe uh, what uh, the prospects are uh, in the, the coming months?
1: I, I would say on a positive note, Donald Trump recognizes that if he goes to war in Iran or North Korea... Void of a major provocative act on the part of either of those players. He will not be reelected. Uh, his, his, his re-election prospects are finished. And this is probably the major reason why we're not going to go to war with Iran or North Korea. Um, the other thing is that he he's such a, 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 a funny political figure. And I don't mean funny in terms of comedic, although there is some comedy in what he does. I mean, funny in terms of he just breaks the mold. But this is a man who allows his hatred of Barack Obama and what Barack Obama has done, uh, the legacy of Barack Obama, to drive his policies. And in many cases, this is a very bad and dangerous thing. Uh, But in the case of Iran, I think Trump's instincts are right. It was a bad deal because it was falsely premised. And I think Trump's instincts are to come up with a better deal. He hasn't found the, the way to, to achieve this yet. It, it, he's not on the right track. But if if somebody is able to set the table uh, and Iran is willing to sit at the table, Donald Trump will, too, and he will come up with a deal that um, that is meaningful. And I think we're going to see the same thing in North Korea, you know, where Donald Trump, not because he's a great peacemaker, not because he has these these wonderful inclinations towards, uh, you know, disarmament, but because he hates Barack Obama. And he recognizes that by making peace with North Korea, he will have done, have accomplished what Barack Obama couldn't. It's driving him to, to do this. Barack Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize. Donald Trump wants the Nobel Peace Prize. It's this sort of weird calculus that's, that's taking place that, that actually has an impact on the, the national security policy and the foreign policy of the United States and the Trump administration. And I think we have to recognize that you know, this isn't you know, fiction. This is real. And it could lead to a situation where we actually have peace as opposed to war.
0: It almost sounds comical, but uh, tragic yeah, at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't write a fiction book about this.
1: <laughs> no one would buy it.
0: Scott, I uh, really appreciate your work and uh, your uh, taking part in this interview. Uh, look forward to more of your articles. And uh, uh, again, thanks, thanks so much for your analysis and your insights. Take care. Well, thank you very much. That was Scott Ritter. Former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, chief U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, and author of several books, including his latest, Deal Breaker Donald Trump and the Unmaking of the Iran Nuclear Deal. Scott Ritter's articles can be found online at a number of sites, including theamericanconservative.com and truthdig.com. This week's Global Research News Hour radio broadcast marks our final for the season. Host station CKUW 95.9 FM will be hosting special programming during our regular Friday afternoon slot. We thank our affiliates across Canada and the United States for continuing to make a place in their radio schedules for our programs. These shows are available for rebroadcast in our archives at globalresearch.ca. Just scroll down the left-hand side of the page and click the banner link to Global Research NewsHour. To leave feedback on the program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Many thanks this week to Jared McKettiak and Winnipeg-based UMFM 101.5 at the University of Manitoba for providing technical support for this week's broadcast. This is series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch, wishing you a safe, peaceful, and prosperous summer. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned for your next regularly scheduled program.